Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Despite having the world's largest economy, American infrastructure is in a poor state. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, our infrastructure was ranked as a D plus. Now with the economy in turmoil, we'll take a look at infrastructure policy and laws and question whether a refocusing on infrastructure could help the economy get back on its feet. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Professor Gratz of Columbia Law School. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you, Joel. Glad to be here. I mentioned in the intro, and I may have taken it from your recent book, The Wolf at the Door, American infrastructure is not something that we as a country can be particularly proud of. No, quite the contrary. We have not had a major infrastructure program since Dwight Eisenhower's effort to build the interstate highway system in 1956. When we talk about infrastructure in the singular, what does that actually entail? Roads, bridges, what else? Well, so if you're talking about infrastructure in the area of transportation, it's roads, bridges, uh, mass transit. There's also the important infrastructure relating to communication, the existence of broadband in particular. There's a great inequality in access to that kind of broadband, particularly in uh, rural areas, but also in some cities. So our communication infrastructure really needs upgrading. And we've seen a lot of children who've had to go home and do their work online during this period of a pandemic. Are we also talking about water supply, electricity grids, that type of thing? Absolutely. Electricity grids, electricity production through things like solar energy and the like uh, are important. Water, we've seen uh, the difficulties of polluted water in cities like Flint in particular. So that's infrastructure that is also crumbling and, and inadequate. Why is it that we haven't seen large infrastructure projects coming through the federal government? Our politics have been broken for some time, and that's a general answer. The gasoline tax, which was originally enacted in the early part of the 20th century, but was raised significantly to fund the interstate highway system, was not increased until a nickel or so was added during the Reagan administration and another nickel during the George Herbert Walker Bush administrations and the Bill Clinton administration. If the gas tax had been indexed to inflation, for example, it would be double what it is now at the federal level. Some of the states, but not all of the states, have increased their local gas taxes as a way to uh, fund uh, roads and bridges and repairs and the like. But Congress has been unwilling to do so, and that has contributed to the state of disrepair in which we now find ourselves. So I guess it's no surprise that the, the reason why infrastructure may be literally crumbling in some places is a lack of funding. Yes, it has been very difficult to find uh, the political will 
to repair the infrastructure that we have. Uh, one of the reasons for that politically is that the benefits from most infrastructure, if you think about transportation or even the location of broadband and electrical grids, most of it has relatively local benefits. And yet the resources of the local governments and the state governments have been really crunched by the anti-tax movement in the states that have limited their revenues. And because of balanced budget requirements that you find in state constitutions, uh, there being none, of course, in the federal constitution, they're required to fund the spending uh, that they do. And it has been very difficult for states and localities to find excess revenues to fund infrastructure projects. Some have, and sometimes they do. So if states are in a budget crunch and need some place to cut, maybe they, they put off that infrastructure project. Exactly. And maybe instead of widening a road or building a road or, or building a new bridge, as we saw New York State do before the pandemic when it replaced the Tappan Zee Bridge over the Hudson River with the Mario Cuomo Bridge. No doubt a coincidence that his son was governor when the bridge was named. But we do see it in, in some places, but it's a very expensive proposition. If the voters are required to vote on bonds issuances, which they are in many states and localities for constitutional reasons, they often vote against that kind of spending. And so you have an anti-tax, anti-government attitude that has been nurtured, particularly by the Republican Party, for nearly a half century now. And as a result, it has been very difficult to find the money. One big question when it comes to infrastructure projects is financing. What options are there when it comes to financing infrastructure? Or is it simply taxes? It's almost always a combination of, historically, almost always a combination of taxes and debt. A long-term investments in infrastructure are actually one of the few ways that the government can spend borrowed money in a reasonable and successful way. The federal government in particular has been spending most of its borrowed money to fund consumption through health insurance or retirement benefits or interest on the federal debt in some cases. But it makes sense to borrow for a new road that's going to last a long time or a new bridge or a modernization of an electrical grid. Uh, there are some examples, some quite surprising in some ways examples, where local governments have gotten together and raised sales taxes to finance infrastructure improvements. Can you share an, an example that actually managed to, to work? There are two that come to mind that we talk about in the book. One is the Los Angeles rapid transit system, which is a combination of buses, underground subways, and light rail. There was a light rail system that was built from downtown Los Angeles to the beach in Santa Monica the first time there has been a public transportation of that sort from the downtown area of the city to the beach in decades. And that was financed through a referendum in which the people of Los Angeles uh, voted to impose another penny. It was originally a half cent, but it's been raised to a penny 
on the sales tax to uh, fund the bonds that were issued. Is that a, a temporary thing, or is that an additional no, penny well, it's, for it's, 10 years? It's, it's, it's going to take a long time. Yeah, it's, it's closer to 30 years, I think, that we're going to see sales taxes paying for those kinds of improvements. The counties around the city of Denver managed to do the same thing, raise their sales taxes by a penny to fund a light rail system that is now available in that area, the most important link of which is from the Denver airport to the downtown Denver, actually to an area that was in terrible shape, terrible disarray before the light rail system. But now that the light rail dumps all of the Denver airport passengers off who use it in the downtown area, that area has been undergoing great revitalization and is now thought to be uh, one of the best features of, of the city of Denver in terms of restaurants and other amenities. So you do have a beautiful in, train station. Yeah, in, infrastructure often has benefits that extend well beyond the jobs that it creates during the time the infrastructure is being built. One of the innovations in infrastructure finance, which is, for reasons I don't understand, opposed on the left by people like Bernie Sanders, been the creation of public-private partnerships where private parties have put in significant amounts, significant amounts of equity funding as a way uh, to finance or help finance infrastructure improvements with the benefits being paid off through monies that are raised because of the upgrading of the infrastructure. Yeah, for the how did these public-private partnerships, or sometimes people call them PPPs, do they give indefinite revenue stream to the, the private partner involved, or is it only for a period of the, of the build and then subsequent years thereafter? A public-private partnership needs to be drafted rather carefully in order to protect the public interest. Needless to say, the private interests are always well represented and the public interests are sometimes less well represented. It depends on what it is you want the money for. So if you want the money to build and design a new facility, those are pretty straightforward. If you want the public-private partnership to also maintain and operate the facility, then they get a little more complicated. There are good examples and there are bad examples. Why don't um, we start with a bad example? Well, the worst example that I know of was the sale to a, basically a private partnership of the Chicago parking meters. Now, it was bad on so many grounds that it's hard to summarize, but the first way in which it was bad was it was essentially auctioning off an existing piece of city infrastructure, the parking meters, in order to avoid what the mayor then, Mayor Daley, was worried about going to the citizens for property tax increase. And so he was just filling the local coffers temporarily by auctioning off the future revenues of the parking meters. And if you look at the rights that the private parties obtained in that arrangement, they're staggering. They're able to 
changed the prices and they've raised the prices any number of times. They've recovered, I think now already three times their investments and they have decades more of income uh, to run. Did you say decades? Plural? Decades. Decades. And so that was just a huge giveaway, poorly thought out and poorly executed. But there are others that have that have been quite successful. The Denver uh, Light Rail was uh, funded in part by private equity. Uh, LaGuardia Terminal B has been funded through a public-private partnership. I've looked at the contracts and the bidding documents. I will tell you they're extremely complicated. I think it's fair to say that the equity interests at that time managed to get themselves a pretty good rate of return and a long-term lease. And airports, of course, which have become America's malls because people have been trapped in airports for so long that they go shopping, do provide a commercial revenue that will fund the debt and the and the partner partner's equity. Uh, so over in that a fairly in that deal, time. the private partner builds the airport in exchange for a right exclusive right to some of the profits generated by the commercial the commercial properties on the airport premise exactly this is a long-term lease i think it's 15 years but i can't swear to that it's been a while since i looked at it terminal c and d at laguardia which are run largely by delta airlines are being funded entirely privately several billion dollars five billion dollars or more of private funding by delta and they will have the concessions from those terminals indefinitely because they put up all all of the money. Most of these projects that are public-private partnerships involve some piece of federal loans or if they're transportation facilities, federal uh, loans or grants through the transportation department, state and local funding uh, through bond issuances that will be paid off the Port Authority of New York issued bonds to fund the renovation of Terminal B at LaGuardia. And then if it's a public-private partnership, some equity funding or some debt or some combination of debt and equity by the private parties. And the key, of course, is that the public not to give away the store in the the course of engaging in these public-private partnerships. I know that you looked into this. I mean, you write about it in your recent book, but do you have, are there best practices to either set up some type of review board or, or other fail safes to avoid basically a giveaway like you described in Chicago? It's worth noting that, that we talk about this as if there's the public on the one hand, and then there are these public private partnerships. But if you think about infrastructure, it's almost always the case that a private contractor is involved in at least the design and the building and sometimes the operation of the facility. And public contracts with private contractors exist in virtually every realm. So as most of your listeners will know, their trash is often being picked up by a private contractor that's engaged with the city or the county through a contract to pick up trash. The Defense Department notoriously has engaged in 
the use of private contractors to build facilities. Obviously, uh, missiles are built by private contractors, along with all of the other defense equipment that we have. But we also have contracts with groups to uh, supply food to the troops and, and the like. So contracting out has become a common phenomenon for government functions. And so the idea that the public authorities need to be careful and sophisticated in entering into public contracts with private parties goes well beyond the infrastructure case. What makes the infrastructure case more complicated is that the projects typically are going to last over a very long period of time. And so that means that you've got to be very careful to shift the risks to the private parties that the government wants to shift. So that if you want to shift, for example, the risks of maintenance or the risks, the cost of operation that you don't want, uh, you know, you don't, you don't want uh, to bear the risks of increasing operational costs, that you're going to have to give the private parties a better return than if all you want is for them to engage in the designing and the building of the infrastructure improvement, in which case you can give them essentially a debt type rate of return. And so each one of these projects is different. Each one uh, requires its own sources of revenue. You know, if you're talking about electric grids, the customers are going to end up bearing the cost of those improvements over time. And the question is whether the public or private authorities will, uh, will get the benefits of those uh, increased electricity charges. The Miami port, which has been completely redone once the pandemic hit, there's a, a bit of irony. It has been historically the case that cruise lines are much more lucrative for a port than uh, freight line, freight unloading. And so large elements of the Miami ports have been upgraded dramatically through public-private contracts with cruise lines. So in this example of the Miami port, who's suffering? Is it is it the, the city of Miami or is it the partners who, who, in a sense, invested and got a cut of the earning stream? I think both in this case are suffering because the revenues from the fees, the landing fees that uh, are on a per passenger basis in Miami are not coming in. And so the uh, the lenders who have bought the bonds, uh, if they're revenue bonds, and I have to say, I don't know whether they're revenue bonds or whether they're a general obligation of the city of Miami or the Port Authority of Miami. I think they're revenue bonds. If they're revenue bonds, the bondholders uh, have risks and may have delays in receiving their uh, payments or interest, and the uh, equity holders will also have uh, risks that, that are now materializing. So it's very hard, hard to predict. We started out the conversation talking about national infrastructure, federal projects. Why do some projects require uh, a national approach? The reason the interstate highway system, to take the example we started with, required a federal approach was that if the states were left to their own devices and deciding where to locate the highways, they probably would not have joined at the borders of the various states. And it is often the case that you need federal coordination for projects like this because 
cities and states are, are rarely on their own bottom. And the federal government has always, at least since 1956, played a role in funding uh, highway construction and improvements and also uh, funding, to some extent, mass transit. During the Obama administration, when we had the financial crisis, the federal government uh, created a vehicle called Build America Bonds, which were taxable bonds, uh, which were issued by the state and local governments to finance infrastructure improvements. And the reason that taxable bonds played such an important role is that the tax exemption, which tends to result in a lower interest rate for state and local bonds than for corporate bonds of the same uh, risk or duration. Uh, those bonds that are tax exempt typically, typically pay a lower interest rate and zero rate taxpayers, pension funds and universities, which have a lot of uh, money and buy a lot of bonds, are not interested in tax exempt bonds because it doesn't matter to them. All that matters is the interest rate. And the Build America bonds that were uh, enacted in, on a temporary basis uh, in the financial crisis are a good instance of innovation in the federal government that allowed capital uh, from uh, not only pension funds and university endowments and the like, but also sovereign wealth funds of foreign governments to come in and, and buy uh, relatively safe investments in these circumstances. And so there are some financial innovations that are important, but the states and localities simply don't have the borrowing power or the uh, financial wherewithal that the federal government has. And so you almost always, for large projects, need some federal money. And often you need coordination uh, between states. So a fa another failure, if you want to go back to the failures, another failure has been the tunnel that the passenger trains use between New Jersey and New York that runs under the Hudson River, which is in a terrible state of disrepair and is creating huge risks of a major disaster. And uh, when Chris Christie was governor of New Jersey, uh, he basically withdrew the state commitment uh, for the funding of a major upgrade to those tunnels that was uh, funded through a combination of New York money, New Jersey money, and federal, a good, a good chunk of federal money, because he had other, other priorities. Uh, this was not the most important thing for him politically. And so uh, when you've got infrastructure that's crossing city or state lines, which is often the case, bridges typically cross uh, one or the other, it's very hard to rely on state or local funding alone. For those who are listening for MCLE credit, the code for this interview is 153105. That's 153105. Now back to the interview. Let's talk about federal or national infrastructure projects. What, what about these excite you? You call your chapter uh, Waiting for Infrastructure. How will this, how could this help stimulate the U.S. economy? 
infrastructure creates jobs for the people who are engaged in designing and implementing the projects. Uh, they often uh, also create jobs for the communities that surround the new infrastructure. This has been true for many examples. The estimates of uh, upgrading the LaGuardia Airport, for example, have been estimated by economists and others to create uh, $10 billion in other economic activity associated with the airport and around and in the airport areas. So they are effective in creating jobs. They're also responding to an to a important need, as we've talked about, and they are properly financed, at least to a large extent, uh, through debt. And so they don't require raising taxes to pay for them currently because they have long-term benefits and the tax revenues uh, can come in over a very long time, as we've seen with the sales tax increases that have funded the improvements in LA and in Denver. But the other point is that the other options for creating jobs on both the left and the right are not, in my view, realistic or effective. And so on the left, the main idea has been to have the government serve as the employer of last resort and for the government to create a job at a minimum wage at least to $15 an hour with very robust benefits for anyone who can't find a job in the private sector. That's not going to happen even uh, during the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt didn't go that far. And on the right, particularly if we look to the Trump administration, we see two ideas that are supposed to create jobs, neither one of which has any prospect of succeeding. Are we um, talking the, about the border wall? Well, the first, of course, is, is my least favorite infrastructure project, the wall on the southern border. The argument is that that will keep out immigrants, and that means more jobs for Americans to, uh, to hold. And there's really remarkably little evidence that building this wall is a one of the higher and, and better uses of infrastructure money. And so that's not going to work. It's just a way in which Trump has chosen to vilify immigrants from the South in order to make American workers uh, feel better, but not to really make their employment prospects any greater. And his other uh, solution has been increasing tariffs a protectionist policy to keep out of foreign imports on the theory that that's going to help Americans. But all of the evidence is that many more jobs have been lost through the Trump tariffs than have been gained through the Trump tariffs. And we have seen many instances, particularly of uh, farmers, but not just farmers, also some manufacturers, who have found that the retaliation from our trading partners has really hurt them well beyond anything they expected. So many of the farmers who uh, supported Trump in 2016 have found themselves without a market 
because once uh, Trump imposed tariffs, for example, on China, China then imposed tariffs on U.S. soybeans and uh, fields are fallow. And so far, Trump has promised $28 billion to the farmers as a way to tide them over, presumably while China begins to find other sources uh, for its soybeans. And those buyers may or may not ever come back. What might an infrastructure bill look like? Is it just putting together budget or is it specific projects uh, tailored to meet specific needs? The fundamental and financing is is difficult as we've discussed and requires uh, some creativity, I think, on the part of people who are are trying to put together enough money to provide a broad effort to improve the infrastructure. But the other big issue, political issue, is that because of the disproportionate representation of rural areas in the United States Senate and in state legislatures, you really are going to have to create infrastructure coalitions that include both rural and urban interests in order to succeed. Now, that's not hard to do because the needs are great in both rural and urban areas, but they're quite different. So that, as we've discussed, broadband and communications infrastructure, sometimes water and and electricity infrastructure are extremely important in the rural areas where they are underserved and transportation infrastructure airports, ports, trains, and uh, mass transit in particular, uh, along with roads and bridges, are uh, in particular uh, bad shape in urban areas. So politically, I think you have to come up with a package that will create enough support in the Congress and in the state legislatures when they're involved to provide an infrastructure that uh, will get the votes, enough votes, to go through the legislative bodies. And that's something we talk about quite a bit in the book. So we won't be expecting a federal infrastructure corps in the near future. Professor, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us today. We'll be on the lookout for new and developing infrastructure projects in the near future. Thanks for having me, Joel. It was a pleasure. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.